just want to make sure it's clear that by saying that I've married some of you, Glenn meant uh, I've officiated a few of your weddings. You've got to make sure these things are clear, you know. Hey, good evening. It's great to be with you all and great to be back here again, uh, especially during Advent, uh, one of my favorite times of year, uh, a meaningful season. In fact, already this Advent for me personally, I, I feel like I've rediscovered an old love, one that fills my heart, one that reassures me that everything's going to be all right. And I'm talking, of course, about eggnog. Uh, just a special goodie uh, that you only have this time of year. Wish it could be all year long. I've uh, enjoyed some last night at our staff leadership Christmas party. Um, but it's a joy uh, to spend Advent together with you. Could we bow our heads one more time? Because uh, I need help. We need help. Let's pray together. God, we do need your help. And our great hope this evening is that you call yourself helper. So we're not asking you to do anything that you're not already making available to us, offering to us. We pray that you would be our helper. We know that you're eager to help us. Please um, unstop our ears that we would hear from you. Please open our eyes that we would see you. Please soften our hearts that we would receive you. And Jesus, please change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the seventh grade, I began to fall in love with mystery novels. I don't know if that's a thing for you, but mystery novels were a thing for me. And so I read every Agatha Christie novel that I could get my hands on. Murder on the Orient Express, and then there were none, Roger Ackroyd, Curtin. Because I love the way that mysteries created suspense. Right? The story starts, and you have no idea what's going on. Not at first. You've got more questions than you have answers. What happened? Uh, who committed the crime? How are we going to find out who done it? What's it going to take? Where are we going from here? And the story slowly unfolds and the excitement builds even tension within you as you discover new clues. And then soon enough, you find yourself just dying to flip ahead to the last chapter, find out the answer. I confess I cheated a couple times as a kid looking forward to find out who done it. Because you just can't wait. You just can't wait to find out how the case is solved. And then, of course, finally they make the big reveal. It was him. Or she's the one that we were looking for. And with a great sense of satisfaction, you close the book when you're done, and you, of course, say to yourself with a grin, well, I knew it all along, even though, of course, you didn't, not at all. But that's how good mysteries grab a hold of you. Our passage today is the Apostle John's version of the story of Christmas. Of course, it doesn't have any nativity scene in it, no angels, 
no shepherds, not even a description of a baby Jesus. But it is his version of the story of Christmas, the story of the arrival of the Son of God into our world to save broken and helpless sinners like you and like me. This is his story, and it reads like a good mystery novel. I mean, at first, if we're honest about it, we have no idea what the apostle is talking about. He says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning of what? And what is this word? And why are we talking about a word of all things? I thought we were talking about Jesus. But then John begins to drop some clues, doesn't he? Hold on, we start to realize he's talking about God. Did you see that? The, The word isn't just a thing. It's actually a person. He's a person. And wait, here comes another clue. The word came into our world. And then detail after detail, John offers more descriptions of this word. The word is a light. The word's not only a light, the word is also life. The word is glory and grace and truth. And the whole time he's building up suspense as we read these opening verses until finally the big reveal, right? In the final scene, he tells us the answer. I'm talking about Jesus. The word is Jesus. I forgot to warn you. Spoiler alert. The word is Jesus, right? This is how the Apostle John unfolds his version of the story of Christmas, like a a mini-mystery novel. And the key, you realize, the key to the suspense is that mysterious word, word. What's the deal with that? In fact, when we study the meaning of the word, word, what we find is that it actually begins to unlock for us the meaning of Christmas itself. What's Christmas all about? What do we learn? Well, two things. First, that Christmas is the story of intimacy. And secondly, that Christmas is the story of vulnerability. Christmas is a story of intimacy and vulnerability. Let's take a look. First, Christmas is a story of intimacy. Of all things, why would John use the word word to tell us about the coming of Jesus. What are words? Words are a form of personal communication, of course. A word is what gives outward expression to inner thoughts, outward expression to inner thoughts and feelings. The other day, my son, who was here earlier, four years old, woke up, And pretty immediately thereafter, he said to me, Daddy, I'm sick. Daddy, I don't want to go to school today. I want to stay home because I'm sick. And you don't know how excited I was at that moment. Not because he was sick. I'm not that sick, right? But rather because here's a little boy, a young man, who's still learning how to express himself. He's not always good at putting words together to unveil the 
inner secrets of his heart, as it were, <laughs> to tell us what he's really feeling, what he's experiencing, whether physically, emotionally, or otherwise. But this time, he actually found a way to tell me what was going on. He actually was able to disclose the hiddenness of his heart. He's sick. Some of you, some of you parents wish your, not four-year-olds, but your teenagers would do the same thing. Some of you wish your spouses would do the same thing, right? Disclose the, the secret hidden, thought, hidden thoughts and feelings with some outward expression. For myself, I was thinking personally, I wish, I wish that my wife, of course, right, that when she sends me to Safeway, to the grocery store, and she writes on that grocery list, cucumbers, that she would kindly tell me, do you need one cucumber or do you need 27 cucumbers? I don't know. I cannot read your mind, right? Because we need words to communicate, to disclose, because we can't read each other's minds. Listen, here's what John is telling us. In Jesus, in Jesus, God is giving us a break from having to be a divine mind reader. Jesus is God's communication of himself to the world. Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago as a visible, physical self-expression of an otherwise invisible God. That's why it says there in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Have you seen God? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Later in John 14, Jesus would say these astonishing words to his own disciples. Anyone who has seen me has seen God the Father. And later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we hear these words. In the past, God spoke with words to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and at various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken a word through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. Jesus is the word, the expression, the communication of God. And these New Testament writers are really just using the language of Scripture itself. Because throughout the Old Testament, you may know or maybe not, God's speech is always a personal expression of God's power. His words themselves are described as creating. His words themselves are described as creating and redeeming, and saving. And so, for example, in Psalm 107, we're told that God sends out his word and healed them. He sent out his word and healed him and rescued them from the grave. You see, God's word is said to be so active and so charged with life and power 
that it's described, his word is described almost as a person. And so it's not out of nowhere then that when John wants to tell us about God the Son using the language of Scripture, when he wants to tell about God the Son, the second person, the active person of the Trinity coming into the world as a baby, coming to heal and to redeem and to save, this personal communication of God, the one who makes God known, it's no surprise that he would call him the Word of God. And so what does this mean for us? Friends, if you want to know what God is like, here's what John is telling us. Look at Jesus. If you want to find out what God is thinking, if you could even dare to believe that you might have access to the mind and the thoughts of the God of the universe, how about that? That if you want to find out what God is thinking, what is John telling us? Listen to the thoughts of Jesus, some of which are recorded for us right here in the Gospel of John. If you want to see what God looks like, maybe not his physical attributes, God is invisible, but rather his moral attributes, how he speaks to the poor, how he even interacts with the proud and powerful, how he loves, John says, look at Jesus. This is a good time of year, this Advent season, whether if you are new to the Christian faith, asking big questions about this otherwise hard-to-know God, that you might take a peek at Jesus as the true and real communication of God himself, embodied in flesh, this Jesus given to you. But let me be clear about this. John isn't just giving us or telling us that Jesus is just the communication of facts about God or just ideas about God. This isn't just about a transfer of information, you see, because words create intimacy. See, here's what's interesting. In John's day, this word, word, was actually sort of a technical term. In the world of ancient Greek philosophy in which John was situated, the Greek word for word was sort of this abstract force that was out there, one that brought order and harmony to the universe. It, it was sort of the, the rational principle, according to the Greeks, by which everything in the world exists. So John here is both using familiar terms to connect with the Greek way of thinking using language that they might be familiar with, but he's also taking this term and redefining it and challenging it, and he's challenging us too. Why? Because far too many of us think of God just as a rational principle, as it were, or as an abstract force, or as just an idea, even a theological idea, maybe even an inanimate object. Recently, I was clicking around and came across a, a, a fascinating story, if that's the right way to describe it, 
about a woman who recently got engaged to her chandelier. It's a part of a uh, phenomenon that's often described as objectophilia, which has to do with the attraction and commitment to inanimate objects. And she explained that she first saw her fiancé on eBay. Well, of course, that's where you would meet an object, right? She even gave it a name, Lumiere, right? And she explains that it was love at first sight. Uh, This nearly 30-inch wide chandelier is an antique, so a little bit older than she was and had to be shipped over from Germany. And so she explained, I couldn't stop thinking about her, how beautiful she was. She has such a beautiful shape, and I could really feel amazing energy coming from here. And although I knew that it would be tricky to get her home, I knew I needed to find a way to make her mine. Of course, you understand those mixed feelings you're probably feeling. On the one hand, maybe the story is a little bit humorous, because it's just so outlandish. Uh, proposing to get married to an inanimate object, a chandelier. On the other hand, it's deeply tragic. In fact, it's most likely that this woman has some kind of a disorder in the way that she's now relating to things around her. Yet what I find interesting, though, is that in some ways, some strange ways, perhaps it might be a, a helpful lens to evaluate our own ways of relating to, yes, God himself. Because even despite the way in which a lot of us talk about knowing a God in a relational way and knowing him and perhaps even talk about loving this God, and yet so often we treat him as though he's an inanimate object or just an abstract force or just a theological principle, not a living God, not a God who's alive, not a God who truly relates, not a God who's a a person. And we don't see the incongruity between these two things. You see, we treat him like a chandelier, especially when it's convenient, when we want him to shut up or leave us alone, when we want to feel special and adorned, but we don't want him to tell us no. And we call it a love relationship. And we call it faith. And we call it a spiritual journey. And we're really just engaged to a chandelier. God is not an abstract idea, John tells us. He's not even a theological principle. He's not a vibe. God is a living person. In fact, so personal that he must be three persons in one God. A trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we're focusing on the second person of that trinity, the Son, the Word. You see... And in calling that Son of God the Word of God, you understand John is pointing us to the deep intimacy that God desires to have with us. Why? Because words create intimacy. A reciprocity where he invites us not to treat him like an inanimate object, even as he loves us, not as an inanimate object, but as people whom he truly loves. Words create intimacy. Right? Because we use words to share our thoughts, our desires, goals, personality, our loyalty. That's why without communication, there's no possibility of a relationship. It's why if you want to shut someone out of your life, what do you do? You give them the silent treatment. 
You stop talking to them because self-disclosure is always an act of love. So John's just not talking about the communication of factoids about God and Jesus. He's talking about an offering of himself. Jesus is the word, the literal embodiment of God sharing himself personally with the world. Do you know him in this way? Would you receive his offer of divine intimacy, the God of the universe wanting to know you and wanting you to know him and to belong to him? Yes, even in a bond and promise of love that the Bible often describes as marriage. Christmas is a story of divine intimacy. But secondly, it's also a story of vulnerability. When you look at the first couple of verses here in this passage, uh, you really need to just pay attention to the way that this word is described, and you will find your imagination just running wild with the vastness of this description. What's this word like? Well, it tells us the word is eternal. How does verse 1 begin? In the beginning was the word, and of course, that's a clear echo of the very first words in the entire Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so therefore, in the beginning was the word already being, even prior to all things being made. We're told here that the word of God, this word, was eternal, had no beginning, and has no end. We're also told that this word is self-existent, dependent upon nothing and no one. He existed before creation. He was before the world was made and therefore could not be dependent upon this world, let alone you and me, for his very existence, let alone his happiness. We're told in verse 4, in him was life. That means he's a fountain in life. He has life within himself. Doesn't need to draw it from you or me or from the sun or anywhere else. Not dependent. He's also divine. Simply, verse 1, the word was God, the only God, verse 18. He's invisible, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, and he's infinitely powerful. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 10 again, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's the giver of life. In him was life. And so you just put this together, and what do you have just the most expansive, enormous possible vision of just about anything that our human minds can conceive. This thing or person indeed called the word that is said to be eternal, no beginning and no end, self-existent, not dependent upon anyone for being or for happiness. life-giving to himself, infinite in his power, invincible in his might. This is the very word of God. Can you see the enormity of the vision that John puts before us? And this is critical when you finally get to verse 14, and he says, and the word, that word we were just talking about, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
You see, the word, this word, the eternal word, the self-existent word, the infinitely powerful word, the invisible word, the he was God word, 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 the untouchable, invincible word, this word became vulnerable human flesh. There are other words that the Apostle John could have used to describe God's entrance, Jesus' entrance into this world, body, human being. But he sticks with this word, the fleshiest of all flesh words. And it got me thinking about that word all throughout this week. The word became flesh, flesh, and the same sort of thing that my daughter brought before me, right? when she asked for a Band-Aid earlier this week because she had cut her finger. I don't know how. I never know how. I just put the Band-Aid on. The frailty of the flesh of her finger. Or even the, the, the red, rashy skin on my little baby's underside. Right? So sensitive. So vulnerable. Or just the reminder about the frailty of her bodies seeing the IV tubes hooked up into one of our members who fell ill and had to go to the hospital. A wonder that our bodies even work well. We're reminded when they stop working. Or maybe you think about the fleshliness of our flesh and the fragility of our humanity when you think about the violence even in our city. It doesn't take much to cut someone down. That's why we do it. Life is fragile. This is an amazing thing that the eternal, invincible Word of God became this kind of flesh, made himself vulnerable, made himself just like you and me. And if we understand this rightly, it really opens up this world of knowing the heart of God, the heart of Christ, his deep sympathy for us in our weakness. Because you know what that means. If the Word became flesh, then he knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be you. Are you hurting today? He knows what it's like to be assaulted, to be abused. He knows what it feels like to have a broken heart. He knows what it's like when your body's not working right or when you're struggling with chronic pain and you don't know how to make it go away. He knows what you feel like when you're just exhausted. You see, tonight some of you feel vulnerable, maybe financially maybe emotionally, maybe physically even. Oh, vulnerable ones, have you encountered the eternal, invincible, all-powerful, vulnerable one called Jesus? Have you encountered the vulnerable one in your vulnerability, the one who does not shun or scorn or run from weakness? fragility, brokenness, as we so often do. This vulnerability of his, which really is the heart of Christmas, isn't it? See, here is the mystery of Christmas. The infinite and eternal Son of God became breakable, became fragile, made himself into not only a human being of human flesh, but all the more so a baby came into this world in a manger, making himself vulnerable to hurt 
and he did this for you and me. See, because this was intentional, of course, not incidental. Because the climax of Christmas love was found over 30 years later when Jesus, in his hurtability and vulnerability and breakability, was utterly broken on the cross as he was killed, as he suffered and died for our sins, our selfishness, our resistance against God, our forgetfulness, our indifference, our moral, immoral indifference towards God. And you know, that wasn't just a a vulnerability of victimhood. This was chosen vulnerability. The Son of God chose to be hurt to save you. Jesus chose to suffer for your sins. Jesus chose to be breakable that the judgment of God might never break you again. This is good news. This is the literal embodiment in Jesus of the eternal love of God for you and for me. And so will you embrace this story? Will you take it into your soul? Will you this Advent let the weak one enter in the vulnerable one? Would you let his life become a part of yours? Because if we do do that, then things begin to change. What we find is that when you begin to embrace that story, uh, the word who, through vulnerability, creates intimacy. When we take it into our hearts, we find that we ourselves begin to offer vulnerable love, just like him. We find ourselves able, more able to let down our barriers and our defenses, the ways in which we try to pretend, project to the world that we've got it all together, have it all made, can't be hurt, when really we know we're just as fragile as the rest, dying inside perhaps, and forgetting even that by exposing those weaknesses and by disclosing our vulnerability, it actually becomes an invitation to other fellow vulnerable ones into your life to walk together in solidarity, both depending upon the grace of God and not our fakery. We become an invitation to one another to walk in common vulnerability. And how important is this as we grow in community? Right? Where are the vulnerable ones around you? Where are they? You know where? Sitting right next to you. We're far more fragile, far more broken, far more helpless than we all dare to admit to ourselves and certainly dare to tell each other. But of course, there are also vulnerable ones even beyond us, all around our city, vulnerable emotionally, physically, financially, needs galore that we all share together that God calls us into. We find ourselves in an age of increasing fear and a sense of threat. The human heart filled with the self-centeredness of sin makes us more inclined to self-preservation and self-protection. Usually that means by surrounding ourselves with people just like ourselves, insulating us from the threats of those that might be so weak they might ask something of us or need something from us. And yet here's Christmas love to go there willingly, to give before it's asked of you, to heal brokenness, to run to the vulnerable place, to cross barriers, 
to heal and to love in common vulnerability, even as the very Son of God himself crossed over from heaven to earth, the Word become flesh. To love, this is Christmas love, isn't it? To assume vulnerability for the sake of healing vulnerability all around us. Will your Christmas be marked by that kind of a love? Not an insulated, protective, tribal, self-love, but a love like Jesus, the Word become flesh. Intimacy through vulnerability, this is good news. This is who God is. This is the great mystery of the Word revealed to us, the Word become flesh. See, the apostle made the big reveal. It was him. He's the one that we've been looking for. And he really is this Jesus, the Word become flesh. And just like with a good mystery novel, I pray that this Christmas, perhaps you'll consider this passage or others, read the story of Jesus, who he was, who he came for, and who he came to be. Maybe you'll close the book when you're done. Maybe you'll say to yourself, with a grin, somehow I knew it all along, didn't I? The mystery solved. The hunger of your heart fed. The longings of your desires fulfilled. The hopes that you were afraid to hope met in the person of Jesus. The one who gives you Christmas love, intimacy through vulnerability, We dare to receive it, ask for it even. Will you dare to give it? Let's pray. So send your spirit now and give us hearts to receive you, to prepare room for you, and then to love like you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.